Hey, that subtle music bed means it's time for cross defense. Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Brian Wolf, the pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and your host on Cross Defense every hour. I got a couple. Hey, I got a. Thanks for tuning in, by the way. I got a couple of great uh, announcements, at least things that I'm excited about. And since I'm the host, I get to be excited about things. Number one, you can uh, praise the Lord and rejoice with me. I finished writing a book manuscript. Uh, it was submitted today. It'll go through a lot of drafts. The plan is to. It'll be published in September or October of next year, but it's called something like a martyr's faith for a messed up world. At least it's called that now, and uh, and so that's done. <sighs> it's like I've just finished, I've just finished running a marathon, I, and I've just finished running a marathon just in time to go live on the radio. The second cool announcement is that it looks like we're working towards this, but this is kind of exciting. Cross defense will not only be on the air in St. Louis; it'll also be on the air here in Denver, Colorado. So now. All of those, all of you who live in St. Louis, but have been and been wanting to move to Denver, but haven't haven't wanted to miss cross defense. You now's going to be your chance. Uh, so that's really great. We got a good show planned for you today. Uh, we're going to talk about. We're going to start talking about the how the devil puts us in bondage through the fear of death. Oh man, this is a really important thing for us to. Uh, to grasp our uh, in our imaginations and think about. So that'll be the first part. And then we're going to have uh, my good old friend, Pastor Ketchemeyer, also known as Old Brad, who's going to come on the show and talk about... I don't, he wrote this book about Luther, Isaiah, and the conscience. And I said, he he had a question about something that I had said about the conscience. He said, why don't you come on and we'll talk about the conscience. So hopefully he'll bring some some stuff on the conscience with him. He might have something else in mind. So that'll be uh, after the first, the first segment. But I want to start by talking about... Uh, as we d- like to on cross defense to excite the imagination w- with the scriptures we w- we're here fighting remember our main thing is we want to fight back the temptation towards theological boredom that's what cross defense is so so we want to think about these things that really matter that to to notice how what the bible says um is not only true but it's good and beautiful and and i want to i want to point out a text to you it's in hebrews chapter 2 and hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 or so is it's it's one of the most beautiful uh pieces of scripture it says that just as we are flesh and blood so jesus partook of the same that is he became a human being so that by his death he might destroy the devil and and then he says what the benefit is and set free, i got to read it because I always get this wrong, it says, for he, through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. That's Hebrews 2.14, sorry, I was sending you to the wrong place, Hebrews 2.14. And then verse 15 says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Did you get that? That, that there is a slavery that is identified in the Bible as the fear of death the devil uses the fear of death to bind us to enslave us to force us to to act according to his will if the devil can get this is what this is what this verse is suggesting to us that if the devil can make us be afraid of death then the devil has us now there's a number of reasons that he has us i mean number one because he can just he can come along and threaten to kill us and we'll just go along with whatever he says do this or die and so we say okay well i'll do this and i and i think this comes to us kind of subtly in our lives that the devil comes along to us to tempt us and he doesn't he doesn't drag us before the before the proconsul like they did in the old days you know of perpetua and 
Polycarp and Mar- Romanus. Remember my favorite martyr, Romanus? He, that's the guy who had his his beard pulled out and chunks of flesh were coming out, and they tore his eyelids and they cut his cheeks. And this show just took a kind of gruesome turn. But they, they were they just mauled Romanus, especially in his face. They flailed his ribs open, and and Romanus says to the proconsul, "I thank you that you've given me more mouths to praise my God." Oh, that that is really incredible. I mean, back in those days, in those kind of persecutions, it was, it was literally the fear of death that the devil was using to coerce the Christians to commit idolatry. He'd say, look, offer this pinch of incense and swear by Caesar, say Lord Caesar, or else you're going to die. But the devil comes along, and, and maybe the days are coming for us. I mean, it's good for us to be ready for that, we, that we don't love our lives unto death. That's how we overcome the devil. Remember, Revelation 12 tells us that, that we overcome the devil by the, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony, and we don't love our lives unto death. And the days might, the days might be coming, and it's good, it's, again, it's good just for Christians to think about this, that the days might be coming when we will be called to testify of the name of Jesus, to speak the name of Jesus, or die. Or, let's say that again. The days might be coming when we're called to speak the name of Jesus and die. If we want to live, we have to deny Christ. It could, it could be that those days are coming. Now, it, who knows? You can't see the future if those days are or not, if it's far away or not. But the devil comes along still, and he tempts us with these little deaths, with these little shames, with these, with these little persecutions. It's, a, these kind of, it's the devil's microaggressions. <laughs> so, so you confess the name of Jesus, and you get this trouble. You, 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 you say the Lord's name, and, and you get that trouble. You, you're called to a to a belief and a doctrine that the world refuses, the world rejects, the world thinks is ridiculous, and so the world wants to cast you away, toss you aside, and all this sort of stuff. And Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that as long as we are afraid to die, as, as, long, as, the, as long as death is an intimidation to us, then we're in bondage. Now, it is... It is amazing to me to think about how, in the first commandment, the Lord says, you, should, uh, you shall have no other gods, and this means that we fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And it seems to me like the idols are those things that demand our fear, love, and trust above God, but that each idol has its own unique sort of thing. Uh, for example, that, that the idol of pleasure tempts us to love it or delight in it, and the idol of money tempts us to trust in it. But the idol of death tempts us to, to worship it by fear so that we're afraid to die. Now, there's a natural uh, fear of death, and, and this simply grows out of the fact that we know that we're not supposed to die. Everybody knows that, that we are not supposed to, our lives are not supposed to end. That's not how God created us. He created us to live forever. I mean, that's how it was in the Garden of Eden. There was no cemetery plots in the Garden of Eden. There were no hospitals. There were no lawyers. It's a fun exercise, by the way, to just think if your job that you have now was in the Garden of Eden. If you're a mother and a father, it's a good one. Husband and wife, that was there. If you're a gardener, <laughs> that was there. At, uh, I, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but Adam was also supposed to be a pastor. If you're a zoologist, you got that covered. <laughs> if you're a lawyer, I'm not sure you're... <laughs> I don't know. This game is is built to alienate listeners. If you are if you're an undertaker, you you did not have work in the garden of Eden. If you're on the 
on-the-spot news commentator. You you were out of work in the Garden. Anyhow, there was no cemeteries in the Garden. We were not supposed to die, and we know this, but but our knowledge that we're not supposed to die amplifies itself up into fear, and what stands behind that fear, at least what ought to stand behind the fear, is the sense that on the other side of death there is a judgment. We talked about Epicureanism last week. Of all things to talk about, Epicureanism. We talked about Epicureanism last week, and we talked about how Epicurus said that the idea that we're going to be judged is one of the most troublesome things of all. So we have to, even if it's true, we have to act like it's not. We have to act like there is no judgment so that we can live a peaceful life. That's the pagan Epicurus's idea. But there's a, there's a way that you simply can't escape that. And so death has a fear to it because we know that it's appointed for man once to die and then to be judged. That on the other side of death, there is a judgment there. And that is free, that is frightful. St. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, The strength of sin is the law, and the strength, the fear of death is the law, and the strength of the law is sin. I'm saying it backwards. I've got to look up the text. But this is, this is where Paul is talking about uh, the Lord's triumph over death in this great uh, resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. And he, and he says it here at the end. He says, the sting, ah, there it is. That's the word I'm looking for. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In other words, the reason why death hurts is because we're sinners who are dying. If we're just dying and going to go see the Lord face to face and rejoice in his, in his, um, rejoice in his kindness and his mercy, et cetera, et cetera, th then there would be no fear. But on the other side of on the other side of, uh, of death, there is a judgment that, is, that stands for us. Now, this is, this is why the devil can, can use the fear of death to keep us in bondage, but this is how the Lord Jesus sets us free. He sets us free by saying, this is really quite incredible, by saying all of the punishment that you deserve, all of the judgment that you deserve, all of the wrath that you deserve, all of the frightful things about death that you deserve, I'm going to take those on myself. I'm going to suffer those in my place, in your place. I'm going to stand between you and the wrath of God that your sins deserve so that now sin is, and death is no longer a threat to us. It's like this, the picture is imagine yourself being in a room and there's a, there's a bunch of people in there and this huge gigantic bee flies in there. And there it says, there's its stinger and it says sin on the stinger and the law is dripping out and the, there's the poison and this bee is flying around and you're terrified of it. But into the room walks Jesus and he holds up his hands. And he lets himself be stung by Jesus, and, so, and the stinger comes out of this bee. So it's no longer frightful. It's, it's no longer scary. It's no longer terrifying. It is, in fact, simply annoying. So Jesus in his death by his blood rescues us from the fear of death, and in that rescue, in that rescue comes freedom. I got to note that Jeff from Tampa Florida is on the line with a question about this, talking about uh, anxiety, worry, and these sorts of things. Jeff, how are you today? I'm doing great, Pastor. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so the Bible, of course, is very clear, in, you know, to about not worrying. You know, do not worry, do not fear. So, is fear and worry a sin that we should be repenting of? It is. Yeah, thank you, Jeff, for the question. Uh, I think it is. When Jesus says, "Don't worry," he doesn't say, you know, don't. Um, 
uh, if you don't want to, if it troubles you. I mean, he just tells us, hey, don't don't worry, don't be anxious. Don't, and he tells us what not to be anxious about. Now, we got to be a little bit careful on a couple of things. Number one, Paul will talk about, as just an example, he'll talk about his great worry for the church, that he weeps day and night over the church. And he does not present that anxiety or worry or stress over things as a sin that needs to be repented of. So there is a way that we are called to care about things. But to worry about things can be a sin, both... Uh, when it consumes us, if we worry about the wrong things, and if we let worry replace faith. When we trust in God, there's a... uh, Worry and thankfulness are pressed... uh, Worry and anxiety are pressed out by faith and thankfulness. Now, sometimes people are just... They have sort of an inclination to worry. They are just sort of worriers. We call these people worry warts. I don't know why we... Never actually have thought about that till right now. I'm not sure why we say say worry words, but we also have to recognize that. So some people are naturally inclined to worry. Some people are are even chemically inclined to worry. There, there's ways that that uh, exhaustion, uh, different kinds of food, different chemical imbalances, and stuff like this bring the temptation towards towards depression and sadness and all that sort of stuff. And we should address those not only spiritually but also uh, medically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a way also that this life is always inviting us to worry. And in, in one way, we should receive those worries and fears as reminders from God to pray. So, here, so here's just two examples. Um, Paul says in, to the Philippians, he says, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will, pa- will, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Peter says something very similar at the end of his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, now, I think taking both of those texts together, we have a really kind of beautiful picture that worries will come to us. I mean, worrisome things will happen to us. And what are we supposed to do with those? We, if, we're, if we're thinking rightly about it, we can use those moments of worry and anxiety as reminders to pray. In fact, I think we can, we can take them as reminders from the Holy Spirit to pray so that whenever we, we're able to recognize that we're worrying about something, we say, oh, boy, I'm, here I'm, I'm worried about this thing. I ought to, I ought to pray for it. Now I'm not saying this like by any means I'm some I'm sort of expert in worrylessness. I mean the Lord knows how much I fret and worry about various different things. But I do think worry is something worry and fear is something that we can repent of because when when we know that our lives are in the Lord's hands, when we know that that as Jesus says our heavenly father takes care of the birds of the air and the and the grass of the fields and that we are even of much more value than the sparrows when that faith is there and thanksgiving for the lord's gifts it starts to push out worry and with worry and fear is pushed out this fear of death so that so that we can stand there facing down the grave and the troubles of this life and and the and the fearful stuff we can stand there facing these things down and we could say look for me to live is christ for, for me to die is gain. I, I, don't, I don't have anything to worry about because the one thing worrisome, the one thing fearful, the one thing that I truly have to be terrified of is God's wrath and it's spent on Christ. I mean, the one thing worth the trouble of worry is the, is the thought that God could be mad at me, but Jesus comes along and he says, I'm not angry. I mean, your, your sins are forgiven. 
And that is the freedom that the Lord wants to give us in the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. Thanks for the call. Uh, Jeff, that was, I really appreciate it. If you have other questions, you could call. That's, uh, the studio number is right here on my page. It's 800-1-800-730-2727. You can join us in the conversation. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, your host on Cross Defense. We're going to go to the break and come back with Pastor Ketchemeyer, who's got something curious, no doubt, on the other side. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with you. Proverbs 27, 17 tells us, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. That's why weekday mornings at 8 a.m., two Missouri Synod pastors test their mettle against the Holy Scriptures, certain that not only will they come out better for it, but so will you. The sword of the Spirit is sharp to the touch, but you need practice wielding it. Check out Sharper Iron, 8 a.m., every weekday on Worldwide KFUO. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. The story of Worldwide KFUO is a tale of technology. Radio was new in 1924 when KFUO was born to serve Christ the Savior. Now, KFUO is still finding new broadcast technologies so we can spread the gospel to the world via the web, smartphones, tablets, and new intelligent speaker devices. And when the next big thing is unveiled, we'll be there too. Broadcasting the good news at the forefront of technology. We are Worldwide KFUO. I never want to put down the guitar to start hosting. I just want to keep playing. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm pastor at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and I have on the line my good friend called Old Brad, Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer, Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Pastor Ketchemeyer, how are you? Uh, I'm all right. Do you guys celebrate Thanksgiving down there in New Mexico? Uh, yes, we do. It is part of the United States of America. <laughs> I saw a, even, uh, a news story. I was making fun. Of, I think I was making fun of Pastor Graff or Flan. I don't. Why do we have so many guests from New Mexico? That is weird. I think maybe I was making fun of Pastor Flammy for being from um, New Mexico and how people thought they had to get their passports when, when my family moved there. And uh, and someone sent me a news story, and it was like a couple adopting a baby, and they had to prove that they were citizens of the United States because they lived in New Mexico. Does that happen to you all the time? Like you fly into a place and they look at your driver's license and you're like, uh, sir, this is the line for U.S. citizenship. Uh, no. That 
Hey, we had a question before we get into whatever you've got for us. We had a question on the on the in the first segment about worry and fear and sin, and if it's a sin to worry, as Jesus says, you shall not worry. And I talked about how. Uh, worry happens, but in fact it is a sin, uh, and that faith and thanksgiving pushes out worry. You got pastoral thoughts on that idea? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you covered, so... <laughs> I'm taking a big shot. You could just totally say that I was way off base, but I did I did talk... I Remember these two verses, one from Paul and one from Peter, where he... where the suggestion from the Scriptures is that we... that we... Um, that we we throw out worry and we but we replace it with thanksgiving or to say it another way that our the things that we worry about become occasions for prayer so paul says be anxious for nothing but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your requests be made known to god or then peter says cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you so that so that when those things happen, when we remember something that we're worried about or we think about something or when that worry just kind of punches us in the gut or whatever it is, that this, is, that this can come to us as a gift, as, uh, that it's a reminder that we ought to pray uh, precisely for these things that we're worried about. It may be that uh, when you're talking about the word worry, maybe uh, a better word would be concern. Uh, that would you have a concern about something, uh, that something is maybe not going the way that it should be going, uh, something is not right, and if you leave that concern to yourself in your inner being and you're just uh, you're contemplating it yourself and it becomes this anxiety because you can't do anything about it, but when this concern moves you to action, you petition somebody who can do something about it. So, of course, in the secular realm, you go to some kind of a civil authority, you go to the public uh, work service, uh, the community, somebody who can do something about this, an authority. But ultimately, these concerns, uh, you can do something about it by petitioning your Father in heaven, uh, all for the sake of Jesus, so that he is there with you praying to the Father, he's there praying for you, that you would uh, take those concerns to the one, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who can actually do something about it. It's the idea of a complaint, too. You know, when you're, when you're concerned about something, you're complaining about something, you're upset about something, and uh, it doesn't do you any good if you just keep that to yourself and you just keep uh, stewing and brewing over it, and I think that's where it turns into what I think you are defining as worrying, this fretting, because nothing can be done. But the, the idea that you want here is that you would, may, you would move this into an action uh, in the civil realm to the authority and the order that God has put into place, or, uh, of course, to your Heavenly Father who oversees all things. There's a, that's interesting because Jesus does... So when Jesus is talking about worry, he, and, he says, Don't, he, and he, says, consider, um, he says, consider the birds of the air, the sparrows, consider the lilies of the field, and, he's, and he says, God is concerned about them. So, so Jesus, it's not like there's to be no concern over these things, but Jesus says, look, um, your Father in heaven has concern for these things, so you don't have to. Uh, he, he, he'll be the one who, who's concerned about uh, whatever, how long you're going to live, or who, whatever's going on, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, and what you're going to drink, and where you're going to go, and all this. The, God will be concerned about that, so you don't need to. So you don't need to. He's got it. He's got the concerned thing all wrapped up. He, in fact, that's exactly how Peter. And I'm working through this right now. That's exactly how Peter says it. He says, 
Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So that the love of God means that we are not curved in on ourselves to take care of ourselves. Like, like if I don't do it, nobody will kind of thing. No, that's not, that's not how it is for the Christian at all. Rather, the Christian is able to rejoice that the Lord takes care of us and blesses us and keeps us. Yeah, and I think that the the problem here is that when it runs to this anxiety that you are overly concerned about it because you cannot do anything about it. Uh, you cannot handle the situation. You can't make it right the way that you think it ought to be in your own sight. And you, you become anxious about this, and it, it starts to paralyze you. It starts to overtake you and rule and reign over your thoughts. Uh, and that's where it's problematic. But the, the idea of prayer is that you take this to the Lord in prayer and that he's the one who is concerned, and you're filing an official complaint with him. <laughs> so he will take care of it in his way and his timing. And so when you pray that amen, uh, you're saying, okay, that's now officially filed to the one who can do something about it. There's something about that word petition, which is that official request to the one who is in charge. And we have these seven petitions of the Lord's Prayer. It's like, you know, it's like the guys that are always walking around downtown trying to get you to sign the sheets so that they can make a petition. They can make this official thing, go to the state house or whatever. This is, we, we, we have a, we officially are presenting these things, uh, to the Lord saying, hey, here's, here's the thing that's wrong. Here's the thing that's broken. Here's the thing that's out of whack or whatever. Uh, we need you to step in and fix it. And I think that on that earthly realm, when you have a petition, you, you're trying to you're, you're trying to be an activist, if you will. You're trying to be active in your community. You're trying to make something happen that should be done. But now in our earthly realm, of course, you might have politicians who, who could care less, and they don't have the same concerns as you do. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. So they just file it in that circular uh, uh, filing cabinet, the trash can, and they just move on. But with God, you know, like you had said, uh, Pastor Wolf Miller, that he is concerned uh, for us, for humanity, and in particular, uh, the, the people of God, the church, the adopted sons of God. You, you, and you made the point that that's in Christ. It's 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 the death of Jesus has what it, it's. This is one of the benefits of the death of Jesus is that it is. There's a way now. It's one for us the concern of our heavenly Father, that that that, that in Christ he, that Jesus is there, like Hebrews says. He he lives. He ever lives to intercede for us? Or, or Romans 8, the same sort of thing. Jesus is praying for us so that now in Christ our prayers are brought before the throne of God and he, and he hears them. So it's not just, we don't, we don't pray in our own name, but we pray in Jesus' name. And, and because Jesus has access to the Father, we have access to the Father in him. And, oh, and this thing, Pastor Ketchemeyer, I get the sense that when Jesus is talking about worry... Uh, he makes fun of us a little bit. He says, which of you, by worrying, can make yourself a foot taller? <laughs> Are you saying that he's making fun of you and I in particular? <laughs> <laughs> I was mostly thinking of you. Hey, what do you got today? Uh, you got some conscience stuff? Some conscience stuff. Uh, of course we could talk about that. I was thinking about more uh, the, the parallel that we see Paul talking in uh, Galatians and Romans insofar as uh, baptism and justification is concerned. He uses the same kind of argumentation here. Well, let's talk about it. So get us started. So uh, you want to start with Galatians? Well, what 
I'd like to do is just look at this comparison. It's, it's almost like a pattern. It's almost like Paul has a template. He says, okay, uh, here's the issue, justification. Uh, here's the answer, the gospel, the promise of God is given to you in your baptism. You have a new identity. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. He's going to work in you. Don't be worried about these other things. So he goes back to Abraham, that it's by faith, it's not by works. I mean, it's almost like he just he has this this same kind of pattern of how he's going to discuss this. So if you see, like in Galatians chapter 2, immediately Paul says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So that's Galatians chapter 2. And he goes on to say that, hey, uh, if, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You know, So if, if all it was was just you just follow this code, uh, you follow uh, the, the rules and regulations of God, his eternal will, then you're good. Well, you didn't need a Savior, and you wouldn't need the Incarnation. You wouldn't need the Son of God. So this is going to be the issue, is Jesus is the only begotten Son, but now in baptism we are adopted sons, and this, of course, is by faith and this promise. So you have this in Galatians chapter 2 where he says, no one, no one, not a single one, will be justified by the works of the law. Well, this is the same way that he starts this whole conversation in this discussion in Romans. Same thing. And remember, both in Galatia and Rome, he's writing to the baptized. We never want to separate the baptized uh, from being a believer, or uh, that you could be a believer without baptism, kind of an understanding, or that baptism is a second thought, or it's some kind of a uh, commandment that you do to prove to God that you have faith. Instead, we understand that baptism itself is the gospel, and it's the promise that's given to each one of us uniquely being united in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Paul is writing to the baptized in Galatia, he's writing to the baptized in Rome, and in both places he goes back to their identity, but he's discussing justification. In no. Romans chapter 3 he does the same thing when he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so both of these kind of start this whole uh, discussion on justification, the person and work of Christ, the need of a Savior, who is the only begotten Son of God, and then making that connection to us who we now have this promise of baptism that we are adopted sons of God. Uh, and so that's kind of where I'd want to start this whole discussion here. Good. So I got a couple of thoughts to ramp it in there because it seems like Paul, he uses two sides of the same argument, which is just, it's really quite wonderful for, for us to see. In Romans, he's going to say, the law can't justify. And then in, and therefore Christ must justify. In Galatians, he's going to say, Christ justifies, therefore the law can't justify. And it's, 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 it's the same argument, but in some ways it's the inverse. They're the inverse arguments of one another. And, it's, and so here's my picture of it. If you imagine that you have a shelf, and that shelf is this little shelf, and, it's, and that shelf has a label on it. It says, things that justify. <laughs> okay? And so the, the, the point of that shelf is that there's only room for one thing on it. And on the one hand, if you try to go and put the law on that shelf, here's the thing that justifies. Paul's going to say, no, it doesn't fit on the shelf. That does not justify. Something else has to be there. That's how he argues in Romans. The law doesn't justify. Only Christ can do it. 
But in Galatians, he's going to say, look at the shelf. Look who's on there, Jesus. And if Jesus is on the shelf, that means the law can't be on the shelf either. So that there's one, only one thing that can justify, only one thing that can save, only, and, and, and if it's Jesus, then it can't be the law, it can't be your works, it can't be anything else, it can't be the false gods or the idols or anything. If it's Jesus, it's, it's Jesus, it, it, uh, and everything else is excluded. Do, do, does, that make, does that make sense, what I'm saying there, Brad? Yeah, 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 it, it does. Uh, but but just, to, just to clarify, Paul will also go into uh, a great uh, pains to, to explain the idea that the law is not bad. I mean, so it's not that the law can't justify because the law uh, is bad. Uh, so what Paul will do is he'll explain that, of course, we understand the law to be the image of God's holiness and righteousness. The problem isn't the law, per se. The problem is us. Uh, we've lost that image of God. We have uh, fallen into sin. We have this problem of, of original sin. We are, are born in the image and likeness of Adam, the, the rebel. And so, therefore, even though the demands of the law, we are required by the law to satisfy completely and fully, both outwardly and inwardly, we cannot. It is impossible for us to do this. So uh, that's where uh, Paul will talk in Romans, kind of clarifying that God has done what the law cannot do, weakened by our flesh, and of course, meaning our sinful flesh. Uh, so God alone is the justifier. And so that law doesn't justify. That law is the image of God's uh, holiness and righteousness. So Paul will argue in Romans that God alone justifies. That's fantastic. And to just and and we should, since we're talking about it, and since it's so wonderful, um, make sure that we define justification because I think this is confused, messed up. Uh, people talk about it, but it is a theological word. So give us the give us the base definition of what it means to justify. Well, we want to understand this in a Hebrew manner of speaking. And this is, I think, what uh, really causes a consternation and problems in uh, medieval Catholicism using Latin, because they have a different understanding uh, of justification as the Church uh, uh, changed uh, the understanding of how this works from the Hebrew Scriptures, and instead used the Latin common uh, usage in the Latin judicial system uh, versus the, the Hebrew uh, understanding of the judicial system. So that in, in the Hebrew world, to, to justify means to pardon, to declare innocent, to forgive, uh, to, to take away that guilt. Uh, that's the Hebrew understanding of it. Uh, what happens in medieval uh, Catholicism is they start to, to change this, uh, this idea of uh, uh, justificare, being to make uh, righteous. Uh, and so the idea is you make yourself righteous. And in twisting this with, uh, of course, uh, the Greek philosophical thought that if you practice makes perfect, and so the more that you practice something, then you become, uh, you know, if you want to practice uh, good virtues, if you want to be virtuous, you got to just keep practicing it, and then you can be declared to be a virtuous person, a righteous person. But we, we need to understand this Hebrew understanding, because this is the understanding that Paul's working with. Paul is working with the Hebrew understanding as a rabbi, that to justify is to acquit. It's the, the Hebrew language that you come before the judge, and either you are acquitted of this accusation against you, this charge uh, that is brought before the judge, or uh, you are uh, condemned. <laughs> you are declared uh, guilty. 
Uh, so it's, it's either a verdict of being guilty or not guilty. And so to justify it to say not guilty. That's the voice of Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And I'm Pastor Brian Wolfbuehler, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And you're listening to Cross the Fence. We're going to go to the break and come back in a few minutes. I want to know what imputation has to do with this. And then I think Pastor Ketchemeyer wanted to go in the direction of the connection between justification and baptism, which is going to be, I'm interested to see what that is. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. When hymn writer Isaac Watts published his Hymns and Spiritual Songs in 1707, there were no organs installed in churches in the New England colonies. Issues surrounding instruments and music used in worship was controversial among the congregational churches of New England. New England ministers instead insisted that metrical psalters be used for congregational singing, primarily using the Bay Psalm Book. In thy goodness, O God, for them. The preface to the Bay Psalm Book said, The Psalms are to be translated into our English tongue, and in it, our English tongue, we are to sing them. Then, as all our English songs do run in meter, so ought David's psalms to be translated into meter, that so we may sing the Lord's songs. Engage with the history of the Bible in America. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. This is here on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Luther Church at Aurora, Colorado. You can find all the other stuff, the theology, things like that, at uh, wolfmuller.co. you got to... I wrote uh, some uh, a blog post last week uh, about death, the fear of death. You can find that there. Some videos are uh, hanging around there, and I think that place will get a lot busier now that this book manuscript is done. Hey, Pastor Ketchemeyer, I just finished writing this book. I just got it done like an hour and a half ago. Uh, that's good. <laughs> I know it's good. I feel like I could jump again, I could walk, and colors have come back and all this sort of stuff. Hey, um... You you mentioned that, so to understand justification, we've got to get the Hebrew idea. This is, by the way, Pastor Brian Ketchemeyer you're listening to from Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Talked about justification as pardon. Um, what about, Where does the imputation idea come in? So Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And then the New Testament picks that up on the other side. And not only does the Lord not impute iniquity, but he does impute righteousness. Talk about. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Um, sure, we, we could talk about that. 
so the the understanding of this imputation, and this is where we want to be very clear here. Uh, when we talk forensic language, this judicial language, sometimes uh, we are uh, mocked because then it's a, a pretend uh, declaration. Uh, so it'd be like as if you have a judge and the judge just says, okay, um, I saw your your uh, your issue here. I, I saw what you're appealing for. I, I saw all of the uh, the testimonies, and and I'm just going to go ahead and say you're not guilty. Okay, moving right along. Next case, please. Uh, it, 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 when we say this is forensic, that God is judge, and it's a judicial language that God makes this declaration. It's not in the realm of the world. So it's not some judge that doesn't care, and he's just going to give us a word that means nothing. Instead, this is God, and his word is efficacious. So we want to be clear on this, that when God speaks not guilty, his word does what it says. When God speaks and says you are innocent, you are righteous, uh, he then gives to us his righteousness, because God alone is righteous. God alone is holy. And this idea of this imputation, uh, the idea of, of receiving this by faith, that uh, this is the understanding that the Christ is our righteousness. And so by faith, we are united to him, and what is his becomes ours. So it's not a pretend righteousness. It's not like God is going to say, well, I'm a judge, and I'm just going to look the other way and pretend like you're okay and innocent. Instead, it's, it's a true judgment. It is a, a true word that says you now stand innocent. You now stand righteous before me, because you have the righteousness of our son, uh, of our son, or of the son, the son of God, uh, Jesus Christ. And this is where, when Luther is looking at Romans in chapter 1, and the idea that the, that the just are going to be, uh, that they were going to be judged by the righteousness of God, I mean, Luther th thought this was a horrible thing. I mean, Luther said, this isn't good news, this is bad news, uh, because the righteousness of God is perfection. I mean, it's there's no sin. Uh, and if I'm going to be judged uh, according to his righteousness, I'm always going to come up lacking. And so this is horrible news. But then when Luther realizes the good news, that this is actually a good word, that the very righteousness that we're going to be judged by is God's own righteousness he gives to us, he imputes to us, that we receive by faith that becomes ours, uh, then this is good news. So that we know when we stand before God and he's going to judge our works, our being who we are in our person, the way that we're going to be judged righteous is not because of what we've done. It's because of what Christ has done. So faith is going to reckon this is righteousness. It's going to take what Christ has, and it's going to count it to us, give it to us so it's ours. And again, it's not a pretend. It's not a, uh, uh, just a kind of an artificial understanding of righteousness that we actually receive by faith the very righteousness of Christ. What about, so, and you wanted to go in this direction, thank you for that, by the way, you wanted to push towards justification and baptism and this pattern of St. Paul. I kind of knocked us off track, so so pull us back on. Well, so understand that in both in Galatians and in Romans, one of the issues that will come up is circumcision. Uh, and we know this from Galatians because this is where Paul is really uh, going straight to the jugular on this, the whole issue of circumcision. He says, hey, if you want to go back and be circumcised and you want to satisfy the law by yourself, then you've become a slave of the law and Christ is of no avail to you. Uh, but the way that uh, Paul will argue in Galatians is if you want 
to go back without Christ the mediator? Well, then understand you're putting yourself back under the law, and there's a curse. And the curse is, cursed is the man who doesn't do everything in the, in the law. And, and that's the whole demand of the law for perfect satisfaction. So it's not just that, like, you can uh, be converted being a pagan, now you believe in Jesus, but now you want to be circumcised. Paul says, well, if you're going to do this to impress God and to put yourself under the law, well, now you're going to be condemned without Christ, and you're going to be under that curse. And, and Paul will argue that this is the whole reason why Christ came. He came in order to die for our sin. He came to hang on the tree for our sin so that he would redeem us from the curse of the law. And so what what we have here is that Paul is explaining that the law itself, uh, which of course is good, is an image uh, of God's holiness and righteousness. But it's not the means by which we make ourselves holy and righteous. We can't do this. And when Paul's talking about circumcision, then he, he's going to go back to Abraham. And this is Paul's go-to text, going back to uh, Genesis chapter 15. And this is the whole idea that God gave the promise of the seed of the woman who would uh, crush the serpent's head. And when Abraham believes this, uh, God counts it to him, he reckons it to him as righteousness. He imputes it to him as righteousness. And so Paul will go back to Genesis 15 in Galatians chapter 3, when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, Paul does the same thing in uh, the book of Romans. When he, he's talking about Abraham, he does this in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So that what Paul is saying is that circumcision itself is the sign of circumcision, because again, remember, circumcision is not a, a symbolic act. I mean, it's a real, literal act in the flesh, and it is a mark. It's a sign that you can visually see, and the sign of circumcision is the seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Now, I understand in the Old Testament that when Abraham's given this uh, the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, it's not a, a symbolic act of nothingness, but it's something visible, something tangible that God uses to tie his promise to the promised seed of Abraham uh, who would, who would uh, come through his line, who would be the seed of the virgin, who would crush the serpent's head. And so the, this whole idea of circumcision in the Old Testament is that sign waiting for the seed, the seed who would come to crush the serpent's head. Well, now that he's come, uh, you don't need the sign anymore, because we have something far greater. And so Paul will uh, focus this attention towards baptism, that uh, we have a sign. And when I say a sign, I don't mean a symbolic act of nothingness. I mean, a sign is something visible, it's something tangible. It's always had that understanding in the Old Testament. It's a visible tangible, something that you can look at and you can be reminded because God puts his promise, he connects it to the sign. And so we have this in baptism. I mean, Paul will argue this way in Colossians chapter 2, where he will say that you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. How? By the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. And so this will be the language that Paul will use in Colossians, but it's all the same kind of a pattern that he's discussing, that we have something far greater, we have the promise. We have Christ, and now in baptism, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit who's uniting us to the death and resurrection of Christ. 
And this is why Paul will say that in, in Romans chapter 6, that we have been united to Christ. We have been united into his death, buried with him, and raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so that we might walk in newness of life. And so when Paul's using this understanding of, of baptism, this is our new identity. It's not circumcision. That was the identity of the Jews in the Old Testament under Moses, who were waiting for the promised seed. But now that the promised seed has come, we have something that's far greater than just merely the outward mark on the body. Paul ties this promise with the gift of the Holy Spirit working in the heart. But of course, when, you, when you're baptized, you have the water and the word, and the water being applied to the, the body is something visible, something tangible, and the promise of the Holy Spirit working. The promise of the death and resurrection united to the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. And it's, it's our daily dying to sin and rising to newness of life. And so Paul will, will use this whole argumentation here about our new identity is not in uh, circumcision, it's in baptism. And in baptism, we are actually <laughs> sons of Abraham. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you who have been baptized have been clothed with Christ. And therefore, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I forgot to warn the listeners that listening to Pastor Ketchermeyer, once you get him started, it's like putting your mouth around a fire hose and then cranking it on. Now, I got so I got to see if I got it all. Are you, are, so I'm going to see if I got all the crumbs that you threw down. You, you, listen, it's like it's, you, you know those, those, like, um, those hot dog eating contests where people are like eating like 50 hot dogs at once. That's how I, but I think I got them all, Pastor Ketchermeyer. Okay, so the baptism, so starting with circumcision, circumcision is connected to the promise of the seed. It's not an accidental sort of thing like, hey, just go circumcise yourself. When the Lord gave the promise to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he said the seed of the woman would stomp on the head of the serpent and destroy him and his children, that's, that, that particular promise is bound up to the sign of circumcision. So that every time, and, and it's confirmed to, to Abraham, because God said to Abraham, in your seed... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so so there's a connection between circumcision and the promise. That's first thing, right? Yes. Second, then, is that when that promise has come, at least this, when that promise has come, when the seed has been born of the Virgin Mary, that is, when the Messiah, when the promise to Abraham and 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 Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and and Noah and and Eve, when the promise that God gave to all of those folks is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus at Christmas. Now, the sign of circumcision is no longer a sign. There's nothing more for it to preach because the promise has been fulfilled, the seed has been born, the child has come, right? Exactly. I mean, because you have circumcision in the world. I mean, there's different cultures, there's even different religions that have circumcision, but they don't have it tied to the promise of the Messiah the seed of Abraham, the seed of the, the virgin who will crush a serpent's head. But when you have that promise with the Messiah, you're waiting for this to happen. And then when it's fulfilled in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, well, you, you, you don't need that anymore. Right. So the circumcision wasn't a work, necessarily. It was a preaching. But the people in the New Testament who were chasing Paul around had had totally missed it. And they saw... 
that circumcision was not a preaching of the Christ to be born, but rather it was a work that you had to do to make yourself right with God. So they had taken what was given to them as a sign and a seal and a promise, and they'd made it into their own works. And 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 they went around to the churches saying, you have to be circumcised. And Paul says, you guys are, you're like, you're wrong five different ways. Your one sentence is like, has five errors in it. First, you don't understand what circumcision is. Second, you make it, you don't understand that circumcision is ended. Third, you don't understand what the gospel is. And, and so fourth, you're now, you're trying, you're, you're undoing everything that Christ has done by your insistence on circumcision there. Okay, now then, okay, but then, so we got to get to this, that just like circumcision preached the Christ to come, now baptism preaches the Christ who has come, the death and resurrection of Jesus that's happened. So that now, in the, in the New Testament church, we have the sign of baptism, which is also not a work, but a preaching of the victory of Jesus on the cross, a preaching of the forgiveness of sins. Hmm? Exactly. And you want to tie this into the conversion of the Gentiles. Because what Paul will argue is that this temporary time between Moses and Christ, that we're waiting with Moses in the Old Testament, but once Christ comes, we have a New Testament. And so he'll go back and he'll say, now notice that Abraham, uh, this is before Moses, and this is before the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant, Abraham believed. And so Paul will argue that we're going back to when Abraham believed, and that in him all the nations would be blessed. But when Abraham was circumcised, you had these exclusions, that it was only male, uh, you could have infants, uh, but it was men, right? But now when you're baptized, and Jesus sends out the apostles to all nations, there are no exclusions. So you have the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit placed upon both men and women, boys and girls, toddlers, infants, Americans, Germans, Canadians, Mexicans. Uh... Canadians? <laughs> hey, Pastor Ketchabar, I'm getting warning signs from the office there that we're running out of time. So I don't. I want to make sure that we uh, that if there's any bells that need to be rung, you ring them. So maybe about a minute or so left. All right. <laughs> Very good. You're going to this understanding of now this message is going out to the nations, because this is what was promised to Abraham, that in his seed the nations would be blessed. And so if you're a Gentile and you've been converted to Christ, but now you want to go back to being under Moses and waiting for Christ, then you've missed the whole point, because the whole point is that all nations would be blessed in him, and you have that blessing in baptism. That's fantastic. Baptism delivers to us the fullness of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It it clothes us in Christ so that we'll stand on the last day decked not in our own works, but in the perfection of Jesus. It forgives our sins. It overcomes death and the devil. It delivers all of heaven. It makes a place for us in the resurrection. All these things the Lord gives to us in baptism. It's it's a death and a resurrection so that we are buried with Christ. And, and if you can imagine the rock of the tomb turning into a waterfall, we have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life through this great gift of baptism. Pastor Ketchemeyer, he's pastor of where Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Thanks you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and your host on Cross Defense. Thanks for, for joining us for this hour where we, where we rejoice in the Lord's Word, which, which tells us things that we could not, not know any other way. It tells us that God is love and that his love is for us who don't deserve it, for sinners, that he 
Our Lord Jesus is even now making a place for us in, in the resurrection and the new heaven and the new earth, and that we will stand there before him, not because we're circumcised, not because we've kept the law, but because Christ was born under the law for us, to redeem us from a curse and to make us his own dear people. Talk to you again next week. Listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at KFUO.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.